0: That's heritageradionetwork.org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Information: Visit byrightmarket.com. Hey, 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 hey. I'm Jimmy Carboni from Beer Sessions Radio. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more.
1: Welcome to the food scene on heritageradionetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkell. Now, before we get started today, I actually want to ask you to do something for me. Um, take a moment, walk to your pantry, your cabinet, and find that bottle of olive oil. Tell me if you can locate where it's from, if it's extra virgin, what olives are in it, and where you store it. You know, if, if, if it's above that stove of yours, maybe move it aside into some more room temperature, tepid, stable place. Why? Why do you ask? Well, luckily we have Nancy Harmon Jenkins, author of Virgin Territory, a cookbook all about olive oil and its history, origins, uses here to tell us how important a material this is. Nancy, thank you so much for being on.
2: Thank you. It's just a great privilege to be here.
1: Olive oil is a very big umbrella topic. Um, Extra virgin olive oil is kind of taken for granted and your book uncovers the truths that are within this huge agricultural product. But it all started stumbling onto some little olive grove in Tuscany. Tell me about finding those two... I mean, 12 trees just wrapped up in vines.
2: There were 12 trees on the property when we bought it. Uh, They hadn't been harvested. They hadn't been taken care of. They hadn't been used, probably, for years and years and years. And I neglected them for the first half dozen, maybe 10 years that we had the place. We bought the place in 1971, uh, 25 acres in a very—I mean, that sounds like a lot of land, but really, believe me, a lot of it was— tumbling down over the hillside, uh, but 25 acres and a tumbled down, equally tumbled down cottage. And and we spent a lot of time fixing up the cottage and turning it into a house and, uh, you know, kind of tidying up around the place. And after a long time, I started looking at those olive trees and wondering who had them why were they here who was using them 12 trees aren't really enough to give a lot of olive oil for a family of i don't know 8 or 10 however many people had lived there last and but i didn't still didn't pay much attention to it it was a long time before i began to realize that we too could grow olives up there and I had a problem. I had a next door neighbor who was supposed to be taking care of the land for me when I wasn't there. And he wasn't doing a very good job. Obviously, my land was at the bottom of his list of what to do. And so I thought about planting something that he would have to take care of. And of course, the first thing I thought of planting was a grapevine, several grapevines. And then I decided not to because it really it's an awful lot of work to plant grapevines and to maintain them and to harvest them and to turn them into wine and to, to check over the wine every three months or so. And then it dawned on me that olive trees were going to be the solution to my problem. So I planted 150 olive trees.
1: As as a meter to see whether or not your land was being tended to, or well, as an
2: no, as a means to get him to tend to the land because <laughs> he would see that olive trees were very valuable, and so he would want to take care of them. If I planted marigolds, he never would have touched the place. Yeah,
1: it's funny because in the U.S., there's more culture of olives on the table than olive oil on the table uh, having grown up in, in camden maine i love that in your book you talk about cradle cap uh, oh. a kind of baby's dandruff <laughs> yes. and olive oil was used more so for that than for you know dunking bread and yeah it was it.
2: kept it was kept in the medicine chest it was a little bottle of i believe that it was pompeian a a brand that still exists to this day and still isn't very good for much of anything except Cradle cap. Uh, cradle cap was something that I guess my little sister, who I remember as being completely bald, had. And so this olive oil was rubbed on her scalp. Um, I, she loves olive oil to this day. I'm not sure why, but maybe it was that early introduction to it.
1: <laughs> Osmosa through the head. But, you know, fast forward to the 1970s. Olive oil wasn't really prevalent even in food magazines No, in the it US. wasn't.
2: It was really interesting. I uh, went back you know when i was doing this book i did quite a lot of research into the use of olive oil in the united states in our in our cooking and i was really quite stunned to discover how recent uh the prevalence of olive oil was and especially of extra virgin olive oil and i discovered that i had written one of the earliest As far as I could tell, one of the earliest articles about extra virgin olive oil in the New York Times in the late 1980s, where I talked about what extra virgin is and what it's not and why it's great and why it's not and all of that. And uh, then after that, I'm not claiming credit for starting a landslide, but I think other people were involved there was a landslide and it became a product that was very precious very expensive very important to have on your table to show that you were a gourmet and uh from there to today it's gone through its ups and downs as people you know people get very nervous about whether it's fraudulent olive oil or not and people get very nervous about whether it's any good or not and they should be but uh I think now as a culture, a certain level of our culture, has certainly understood what olive oil is and how it can be used on the table and in the kitchen. And that's really important.
1: So let's make the assumption we don't and redefine what you did over 25 years ago for the Times. and. Maybe how extra virgin has changed over those years.
2: Well, one of the one of the big changes is in what we know uh, from a nutritionist perspective about extra virgin olive oil back then, and continuing on to uh, the first Mediterranean diet conference that was held in Cambridge, Massachusetts, in I think it was 1992. I'm not entirely certain of that date, but it doesn't matter. Um, The International Olive Oil Council was involved in that. And what we knew then and what the the scientists at um, the Harvard School of Public Health said was that olive oil was a valuable product on the table because it's a monounsaturated fat. And that means that it lowers... LDL cholesterol and the good stabilizes cholesterol. or increases the good cholesterol HDL and so for that reason they were promoting it very heavily to be used in the American diet and mind you there's a lot of talk now about how oh we finally come to realize that uh, fat has a place in a healthy diet <laughs> we knew in 1992 that fat has a place in a healthy diet it didn't take uh, 20 years of scientific research to show that but it was convincing the rest of the public that it was true but the difference You were talking about the difference. The difference between then and now. You have to stop me from talking if you want me to because I just—I have this button in the middle of my forehead and when you push it, I start to talk and you have to push it again to get me to stop. So talking about the differences between then and now. Now we know there's a whole lot more going on with extra virgin olive oil. Not with regular olive oil, which has been refined, but with extra virgin olive oil because it's full of polyphenols that are plant products that many of which act as antioxidants and help maintain a really good balance, help to combat inflammatory diseases like uh, various types of coronary disease, various cancers, even Alzheimer's it suggested, strongly suggested that not that eating olive oil is going to prevent you from getting Alzheimer's, but maybe you won't get it when you're 52. Maybe you'll have to wait till you're 62.
1: No, I'm I'm joking
2: about what is a very, very serious yeah, problem. I
1: mean, but, you know, omega-3 fatty acid is something we've taken for granted, you know, in, in the uh, there's fishing There's no, by train. the way,
2: no omega-3 fatty acid in olive oil. If there is, it's an indication that it's been cut with canola.
1: Interesting. Yeah. I mean, so, but these good fats yeah. uh, have always been associated but never been kind of elevated right. in olive oil. It's always been, you know, the, this ingredient rather than at the forefront of what are ingredients and what is an agricultural. I think process. it should
2: be I think it should be the most important I think it is the most important ingredient in a modern kitchen. And um, I think even in Asian kitchens, olive oil has a use. Obviously a very strongly flavored olive oil isn't going to go down with a delicate sushi or sashimi, but uh, nonetheless, a lighter olive oil, and by that, I don't mean that stuff called light olive oil in the supermarket. I mean a, an olive oil with a lighter flavor profile. That could be terrific with a Japanese dish or uh, or certain types of, of Chinese dishes. I can see it working very, very
1: well. You know... You wrote the preeminent book about the Mediterranean diet itself, so why not start in Greece? And talk about Crete and Easter and yeah. Olive Oils Association.
2: Well, that was uh, that was a wonderful, you know, I, I think, I mean, Easter to me is the most exciting festival in the Mediterranean. And it's exciting, first of all, because that's where all these festivals of renewal and Passover is, after all, a festival of renewal. That's where they began was in the Mediterranean, in that Mediterranean environment where the earth comes alive in the very early spring, and the dead gods that have been buried under the soil all winter reemerge and bring, you know, Demeter finds her daughter again and brings her back to life, and the green leaves form on the trees. And uh, it's, it's a celebration. It's almost a celebration of Mediterranean cuisine, too. And Mediterranean cuisine, as you know, because you've read the Mediterranean Diet Cookbook, is really based on three things. It's based on wheat uh, in the form of bread or pasta. It's based on wine. And it's based on olive oil. And you can see that in both the Christian and the Jewish religions. You don't see it so much in Islam, because Islam doesn't seem to be quite so tied to to foods as Judaism and Christianity are. But you certainly see it there um, in everything. I mean, what is Hanukkah but a celebration of olive oil, after all? And uh, and it's the same olive oil that was used to anoint the kings of Israel in the Old Testament is now used to anoint priests in the Christian church. I mean,
1: in olive oil, I mean, olive branch and Noah's Ark. Yes. Yes. I mean, it's, it's symbolic throughout that culture and history. Did you
2: know that if you go to Lebanon, they will show you the tree from which the dove plucked the olive branch to take to Noah's Ark? That's a, that,
1: that's not Oza-Strew. The, the, no, no, that
2: that one's on the island of Sardinia. Yeah. yeah. Well,
1: what's fascinating, too, is, you know, we talk about this in in this almost abstract history, you know. We don't know anyone that was alive, you know, BC, and right. can actually uh, recant those, you know, uh, historical moments. But we have a three thousand year old route in Sardinia.
2: Yes, indeed. I mean, it's quite amazing. And not only in Sardinia, also in Puglia, uh the the heel of the Italian boot, the kind of southeasternmost bit of of Italy that sticks out toward Greece. There, also on the island of Crete, there are these historic, monumental historic trees. One of the big worries that has come up this year is that those trees in Puglia have been attacked by a bacterium that seems to be destroying them. And these are trees that are 2,000, 3,000 years old. And to see them being decimated by this unknown disease, and nobody knows how to take care of it. It's just heartbreaking.
1: I mean, the optimistic thing that comes out of that is you planted new trees. Yes. And those olives and olive oil therewith are amazing. So it's not necessarily in, in the same vein as, as wine where, you know, the older the root, the better oh, the fruit. No. Or is it?
2: Well, to a certain extent, it probably is. But, you know, the older the root with olive trees the harder it is to harvest them and the the bigger the tree it's very hard to harvest one of those giant trees you really need to do it in several uh several sessions as the olives mature from the outside in it's much easier to harvest my little trees yeah. because a single person can go around the tree and maybe send a small child up into the top of it to get those uttermost uh, olives
1: and I, I love that you say this from experience too yes. because within the book uh, uh yearly, you you have a crew of people that come right. over and spend some time with you on the Olive Orchard right. and exactly. pick olives themselves. And
2: it's so much fun. I hope you join us sometime.
1: I, I do not. I'm still kicking myself for not coming last uh, year. But luckily, this is, this is an annual event.
2: Yes, it is indeed. We have to do it every year. Last year, we were very, very fortunate because all around us, our neighbors trees were, well, I don't want to say our neighbors up there in the mountains where we are, but our neighbors a little lower down were decimated by the olive fly. This is a a fly that um, plants its egg inside the olive and then a worm emerges and eats around the inside of the olive before it finds its exit hole and falls out. And it just destroys the olive harvest. I know loads and loads and loads of people who simply didn't harvest olives this year because their olives are in such bad shape.
1: Uh, but we were fortunate. Yeah. Ours, our, our olives were good and we managed to get a crop. I mean, you bring up those that harvest olives and, again, an agricultural pro- product. And behind that is a farmer. Yes. And I'd love that you profile, you know, a number of these olive growers within right. your book because, as wine has a terroir, so does olive oil. Yep. And, you know, uh, it goes all the way to the person that is managing that property. Right. So tell me about some of your favorite. Locations around the world for olive well, oil and the people behind them.
2: You know, uh, I think, I- I'll tell you about two favorites. One is um, Lorenzo Piccione, who makes olive oil in Sicily, uh, in the Iblea Hills, which are north of the town of Ragusa. If you, can, if you have a picture of Sicily in your head, you'll know where I'm talking about. Oh, I have about. a
1: picture of that town, and I'll tell you off air. Oh. It was the last time I almost like cried in front of my wife. Because we were were driving through those hills and a large animal was in the middle of the road. It was raining. We were lost. There's no GPS or often little hospitality in, in, in Sicily. And I stopped. And then out of the dark came another animal twice the size that picked that thing up, looking like it was going to eat it, and walked away. And I was just done.
2: What kind of an animal was it?
1: <laughs> I have no clue. Oh, my but God. But that's how wonderfully alluring and surreal Sicily is. Beasts so. of the Sicilian wild, <laughs> <Yeah. right? laughs> I, can o- I can only picture how amazing this property is. Well, it well. is
2: pretty amazing. And he has uh, almost exclusively a t- an olive cultivar called Tondo Iblea, from which he makes this olive oil. And it comes from his town turf called Piano Grillo and it's sold under that label. He's he he practices organic agriculture. He's a very wise farmer. He does all the right things, but he will not go for organic certification or protected denomination of origin or any of those other things that mark a prestigious olive oil because he just doesn't want to be bothered with all of that bureaucratic nonsense so I admire I admire him enormously especially because he makes such fabulous oil but the other person I want to talk about is very very different um, uh, Lorenzo Piccione is is on his own pretty much. I mean, he's got workers who work for him, obviously, but he runs the whole thing. The other person I want to talk about is Nasser Abu Farha, And he is a Palestinian uh, from the town of Janine, way up in the Northern West Bank, almost on the border with the Northern border between Palestine and Israel. And he uh, has his PhD from the University of Wisconsin, where he wrote, uh, his thesis was published not by University of Wisconsin, but some other university. I think, think it's called Anatomy of a Human Bomb. And so being Palestinian, what he was concerned about was the fact that this struggle to maintain a Palestinian identity was being frustrated all the time, and frustrated especially by violence, because violence often seemed to be the only uh, effective response to uh, to Israel. And so uh, he wrote this book, and he brought his theses back to the West Bank with him, and he determined that part of what was the problem was the economic structure of the community and it was a community that has been cultivating all this for the last four or five thousand years so uh why not do something with this olive oil? And he formed a cooperative that produces organically certified olive oil that's sold in this country but throughout the world. And it has made a huge difference in the lives of people because it's given them dignity, it's meant possible to hang on to their land, and it's given them an income. And it's been a great, great um, – uh, it's been – very informative for me to know this man and to see the kind of influence. He's a very unassuming looking guy. He always wears a pork pie hat. I think maybe he's worried about baldness. I'm not sure <laughs> of that. Um, he's not the kind of person that you would turn around to look at twice. He's not some Moses like figure. But he's been so effective that it's just amazing what he's been able to do.
1: It's just endearing to know that there is an olive branch within the olive oil Yes, community. exactly. Uh-huh. And on that note, we're going to take a quick break. You've been listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. We'll be right back.
0: Cool, sir. Today's program is brought to you by Byright, a family-owned San Francisco-grown market. For more information, visit buyrightmarket.com. Buyright is a family-owned and San Francisco-grown market that is passionate about creating community through food. From organic farm-direct local produce, sustainably-raised meats, and artisan cheeses to food-friendly wines, house-made foods, and dinners, Buyright is an essential San Francisco destination for any food lover or cook. And no trip is complete without a visit to the renowned Buyright Creamery and Bake Shop for a scoop of salted caramel ice cream. Now celebrating 75 years in the Mission District of San Francisco. Visit BuyRightMarket.com to learn more. BuyRight is a proud business member of Heritage Radio Network, supporting good food media from coast to coast.
1: Hey, and welcome back to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here today with the woman behind Virgin Territory, a cookbook about olive oil, Nancy Harmon Jenkins. And we we were just talking quickly during the break about a region, Andalusia, Andalusia, um, that is actually one of, if not the largest producing region of olive oil in the world.
2: Well, Spain itself produces, I think it's 53% of all the olive oil in the world, and much of that comes from Andalusia huge, huge terrain, just, I mean, when you stand on a hilltop in Andalusia, and you look out, it's like looking at the sea, these rolling hills that are covered with olive trees. Not all of the olive oil is very good. A lot of it is not very good. But, uh, and that's primarily because of the way it's produced and marketed. It's, it's, um, it's, it's, produced in cooperatives and milled in cooperatives, which means very often there's a long delay between the harvest and the milling of the olive oil, and that means the olive oil is not very good. And then it's marketed by cooperatives too. But there are a few, uh, a handful maybe, of people in Andalusia who are making really superb olive oil in a place where it's not the tradition to make superb olive oil. One of them, um, you mentioned, are the people in in Baena... Um, Nunez de Prado uh, there are a couple of others and of course I can't remember their names you have to buy the book to find <laughs> out who they are uh, but one family in particular that I think is really interesting is the Vagno family and they make a an olive oil that's marketed under the brand name Castillo de Canena it's widely available in this country, and they have several different olive oils that they produce under that that particular brand. That is uh, an old family of olive producers in Andalusia going back many centuries, but the current generation, Rosa Vagno and her brother Paco, or Francisco, uh, left very high-powered jobs. Rosa was an international vice president of Coca-Cola, and Paco was uh, very high in the Banco de Santander, one of... Spain's top banks. They left these in order to go back to the family um, property. And produce really high-end olive oil because they recognized that there was a market for this, and that they could they could tap into that market.
1: I mean, there, there's the market for that, but there's also uh, super high density olive oil happening in Chile and, right. and California, of yeah. other places.
2: Yeah, oh, that's a huge story. I mean, that's mm-hmm. I, I, I'm of two minds about super high density. The uh, California Olive Ranch is the biggest producer of super high density olive oil. that is olive oil from super high density plant in uh, California, but the big news is that Boundary Bend, which is a major Australian producer of olive oil, has just bought a huge tract of land in California and is producing olive oil there for the first time. And they, too, are involved in super high density. And that
1: means the crop itself is grown really close together.
2: so close together that if you look at it from a distance, you would think that they were uh, vines, rows of vines, because the trees are kept short and they're kept very tightly pruned. And what what it means is that they cut back on the two major areas of um, manodopera what do we say in English uh, <laughs> manpower involved in in making olive oil. One is the pruning which has to be done uh, with those kind of trees annually and the other is the harvest and so both the pruning and the harvest can be done mechanically with these uh, super high density trees. They're kind of over the row um, machines like what's used very often in, uh, in vineyards and they go down the Row and they prune them and trim them and then they go down the row at harvest time and they pull off all the olives and the guy in charge of the california olive ranch mill which is enormous told me that he runs it with one other person and they can produce olive oil within two hours from harvest to the oil coming out of the machine and that is extraordinary because we've always known that the fresher the olive oil is the better it's going to taste and the more of those polyphenols and antioxidants is going to have going on in it, too, because those tend to decline with age in olive oil, which is why we don't recommend that you store olive oil in your wine cellar along with your 1984 uh, Brunello di Montalcino.
1: Yeah, yeah, I mean, you you have a list of rules in the book, which, again, people have to buy to find out all of them. But I, a good one is to use olive oil within the year that you are living. I mean, it,
2: it's yeah, within the year yeah. that it was produced. Yeah. Um, that's a good rule. It's not a universal rule because we, in Tuscany, with our own oil, we tend to use last year's oil for our cooking and this year's oil for our garnishing.
1: Well, we don't all have olive groves,
2: <laughs> <laughs> And we don't all have access to bottles that have the harvest date on them. That's one thing I think consumers should demand more and more often is to see that harvest date, not the use-by date, which is a different thing, but the actual harvest date of the olive oil. If you see that on a bottle, and if it's not 1954, you can be pretty sure that um that you're getting a good product
1: recipes because with olive oil comes fantastic cuisine food mediterranean diet but simple traditional things like tuscan bean soups Uh, i love there's a little sidebar in the book of simply drizzling olive oil on popcorn um because we're it's a fat it's also a very flavorful fat and every olive oil has its own distinct you know attributes to it but I I, I want to talk about some of your favorite recipes that include olive oil either as an ingredient as as a condiment or as a conduit
2: well I think the best thing to say about olive oil is that it the simplicity of the process by which it turns into an, an ordinary dish into a great dish is astounding. And my favorite illustration of that is, um, well, especially, I was going to say especially bitter greens, but not especially bitter greens. Bitter greens, steamed, uh, tomato-sliced. Um, uh, eggplants fried, any of those products are better if they're done with olive oil. You steam the bitter greens, you drain them, uh, you toss them with some olive oil and a bit of chopped garlic and you've got a fantastic dish. Or uh, my favorite one is to bake a potato. Sweet potato or white potato, it doesn't matter. Crack it open and pour olive oil and flaky sea salt over it, and you've got a fabulous dish. That, by the way, is a great way to um, taste different olive oils. If you've got three or four different olive oils you want to taste, bake some small potatoes and crack each one open and pour different olive oil on each potato. And that way, because the heat of the potato will um, really, uh, it will push up those volatile oils that are volatile flavors that are in the olive oil and really make it taste good. The other thing, though, I think is, uh, is a great technique is one that I learned from a Spanish chef down in Alicante who taught me about making what she calls emulsions. And basically it's pureeing anything. She started off with tomatoes with a simple tomato sauce. She cooked the tomatoes. Maybe she had a little bit of garlic, maybe a little bit of, of onion in there. And then she pureed them with a, you know, those handheld stick blender things. And then as she was pureeing this warm sauce, she was beating into it about half a cup of olive oil so that it it emulsified almost like a mayonnaise, and it was superb.
1: I mean, I, I was going to mention mayonnaise uh, before because oh. as such a rudimentary thing, kind right. of in the American lexicon of of, of ingredients, yeah. it's not even a condiment; it's an ingredient right. now. Yeah. Um, if you make that with fresh, beautiful, uh, you know, poignant olive oil, yeah. it's not like a mayonnaise you've ever had. Well, before. it
2: certainly isn't like. Um, uh, Oh, I can't think of any of those mayonnaises you buy in a bottle at the supermarket. But it's not it's, like that. It's better at all.
1: that you've you know yeah. like vetted that from your mind. Yeah,
2: yeah. Um, it does have an olive oil flavor, however, and not all pe- always are people prepared for that because all mayonnaise to us has a kind of bland, tart, um, salty flavor, and this mayonnaise made with extra virgin olive oil is going to have a very pronounced flavor. I like to make an aioli with olive oil. I think that's where it's more acceptable to most people because the garlic. Somehow, uh, it blends better with the flavor of the olive oil than just an egg, some salt, some lemon juice. See, this is the time
1: of year I like to make a romesco with olive oil. Oh,
2: God. Fabulous. Yes.
1: Even though I believe romesco to be an all-year-round kind of uh, sauce condiment.
2: It's kind of hard to justify it in the wintertime, but it certainly works well in the wintertime, (laughs) doesn't it? Yeah. And pesto. My God. I mean, what could be better? And there's so many different kinds of pesto. You know, We think of pesto as being basil and pine nuts and parmigiano, maybe. But there's that great pesto from Sicily that I love from Trapani on mm. the far western coast of Sicily that's made with um, tomatoes and ground up um, roasted almonds and a little garlic and a lot of olive oil.
1: Yeah. Or pesto at that, too. <sighs> yes, exactly. I mean, again, olive oil is, is- omnipresent in a lot of ingredients and uh, um, it's always been taken for granted. You see it's measurement a cup, a half cup, a tablespoon, a teaspoon, but rarely is it specified in cookbooks as to which olive oil. So say if I was starting to collect for a pantry, how many olive oils should I have and which ones would be great for a novice?
2: Well, I think uh, honestly that a novice should start off with just two olive oils and one should be uh, not very heavy in flavor, and for that I would suggest an Arbequina, either from Catalonia or from um, or from California. They do a lot in that super high density planting. They do a lot with Arbequina uh, cultivar, which originally comes from Catalonia, or a Tajaska from Liguria, which is another. Yeah, this is a whole section of the Mediterranean that really likes very light flowery delicate flavors and so even though romesco comes from catalonia <laughs> we'll leave that aside um so any olive oil from a place like that is going to be a good olive oil to start off with the other thing to think about people are always complaining about the price of olive oil but if you go to a good greek market for instance over there in astoria you will find some excellent Greek olive oils in three-liter tins. These are extra virgin olive oils I'm talking about that are at prices that are affordable. And that maybe should be your all-purpose cooking oil. And then maybe you should have a stronger-flavored oil like a Tuscan or Umbrian or uh, or those Castillo de Canena oils I was talking about um, or a Sicilian oil for uh, for garnishing, for salads, for using raw. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. I mean,
1: it is such a big world to navigate, but you have to start somewhere. And it really is about what what you like to. So uh, going to places where you can taste olive oils and experiencing like that. And what's great is that you have a list of trusted retailers uh, that you can go to because you don't want to wander into any old supermarket and pick right. up a bottle of extra absolutely virginal. not. So Olio To Go, the Palo Selects, Market Hall Foods, Corti Brothers, Zingerman's, Guciamo, and thankfully our sponsor for today, Buy Right Market in San Francisco. Oh. But again, it, it, it's something that you have to experience, taste, and see that there is a, a culture as large, if not bigger than the wine world, in, in, in breadth of flavor, and mm-hmm. structure.
2: Well, the the biggest difference with wine, first of all, I think the subtleties of flavor distinction are a little more subtle in olive oil than they are in wine. But the other distinction, and this is really important, is that wine very often will get better with age, and olive oil never does. So uh, it's important to taste and taste and taste. That's what Marcella Hassan yeah. said to me a long time ago. You must taste mm. and taste and taste, she said. Um... Next time I'll do my Julia Child interpretation. <laughs> uh, but she uh, she was right. You have to taste and taste and taste. You have to understand what good olive oil tastes like. And you don't find that in a supermarket.
1: Two other tips that you have are use your olive oil. And that, that means actually be active with it. Have it in a lot of recipes. Don't be scared. And then use it liberally. Yeah. You know, a, a little olive oil here and there is fine for maybe baking for, you know, a, an ingredient within a sauce. But... I mean, it's on the table for a reason now, Um, not just for its perfunctory flavor, but again, health benefits and so much more. So I I think a good idea, a a good creed to kind of live by and this episode with is grow old with wine and stay young with olive oil. Oh, that's great. (laughs) (laughs) But again, go out and buy Virgin Territory, Exploring the World of Olive Oil by Nancy Harmon Jenkins and be liberal with your olive oil.
2: And start your children off with it very young. I think the first drops on a baby's tongue after mother's milk should probably be the best extra virgin olive
1: oil you can find. We'll ask Sarah about that. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you again for listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan durkel Hoping to have you back here next Tuesday at 3. Cheers.